Coming up on Life is a Festival. We're a community, and the organization is a core that is helping facilitate and steer Black Rock City into being. And out of Black Rock City comes all these cultural tendrils of, of action, of cultural action, like Birders Without Borders, like the regional network, that from it is bringing artistic grants from their different events and gatherings. The, the thing about being part of the Burning Man community is you're already in little sub-communities of volunteer groups and theme camps, and so you're already set up to be active. And the organization is, is a matrix, a center of a matrix, where you can learn information, you can learn about how to be a better volunteer, you can learn about leadership, you can learn about starting organizations. So we've always been doing pieces of these things. It's just that they, 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 this ends up lower on the list when we're producing this event. And we also have an event production team that are, are rangers and their emergency services that have so many things um, that could be improved about how we operate so that we can be a better leader and we can be a better organization and we can do things that serve the community more than just trying to keep the uh, organization alive. So we need the eight million, seven to eight million. It depends on how you know, what money is coming back in and what donations look like. But that's the goal just to get to the end of the year. And it's a serious goal. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only Oh, my dear, beloved friends and fellow travelers, this is a big day for Life is a Festival because today I'm releasing my interview with none other than the CEO of Burning Man, Marion Goodell. Now, I've been wanting to have a conversation with Marion for a long time, and I'm so honored that she chose my podcast as a place to share the needs of the Burning Man organization in this strange time. So on the show... We open with a conversation about whether Burning Man is, in fact, as is fervently contested, a festival, or if we should protect the unique event from such a label. We spend about 20 minutes talking about Marion's life and her family and her first foray into the desert. We discuss Burning Man's cultural course correction, which was released in 2018, and how the community has responded to it. We get into some of the issues that are most important to the Burning Man community right now, especially the idea that radical inclusivity must now be proactive racial inclusivity. We also talk about Burning Man's 2030 sustainability roadmap, which has been accelerated by taking a year off from going to the Black Rock Desert. And the core of this conversation is the idea of what Burning Man needs to survive now. So there really are three different aspects of Burning Man. There's the global culture, there's the event that happens once a year in the Black Rock Desert, and then there's the Burning Man Project itself, the nonprofit organization that facilitates the Burning Man ethos globally. And the Burning Man Project needs our support. 
So we get into that today. We talk about the finances of Burning Man and how you, dear listener, if you have abundance in your life, can help us make Burning Man come back in 2021, or if not, in 2022. So it's a big time. It's a big time for our culture. And I must add that this is not a podcast where we introduce people to Burning Man. We all know what Burning Man is. This is a podcast for burners to understand more deeply the mind of one of the leaders of our beautiful global community. So Marion is one of Burning Man's six co-founders and currently serves as CEO of the nonprofit. She's had some previous roles with the organization, including Director of Business and Communications, and also, briefly, the head of BlackRock City Department of Public Works. She received a BA in Creative Writing from Goucher College in Baltimore and an MFA in Photography from the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Like many of us, she first came to the desert after seeing a photo and was a participant in 1995 before becoming one of the original founders of the organization. Remember that one time when we saved Burning Man? I have one question because I just want to prep you before we start. And this is something we didn't, I didn't ask before. I'd love to ask... Is this another thing? Do I have to do another no, no, thing? No, 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 you don't have to do anything. But I, bef- I want to ask you whether... I want to talk about Burning Man being a festival versus not being a festival. Because this whole idea of like, is Burning Man a festival is something that is very interesting to me. And it's a question that I didn't prep at all. And I think it's funny. But I just wanted to like, before we start... That's one of my favorite questions. Really? Why why is it one of your favorite questions? Well, are we going into the question at the moment? It feels like we are. If you if you're cool with that, <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious why it's one of my favorite topics about Burning Man because, as you know, like I worked with Chip on Fest 300. My podcast is Life is a Festival. I personally mm-hmm. think that Burning Man is a festival, and I love talking about it because I get very very passionate responses when I ask whether Burning Man is a festival and why people feel passionately that it is not. That it isn't? Yeah. It's one of my favorite questions because it opens up the dialogue about what is a festival. And I find that, for me, it's historical context. Mm. So I think when you look at what deemed itself a festival in, for instance, I think the word for me brings the image of the Middle Ages when communities would bring their wares to a particular place and time together and would create a festival or a street fair like we have now. So a fair or a carnival, A-I-R-E. And I guess for me, I avoid using the word festival to describe Burning Man because I think the contemporary version of festival for most people involves beer and food being sold and trash cans and that the producers of the festival are creating an infrastructure for people to come in and enjoy passively, listen to music, buy your dinner. And that's kind of the contemporary version of a festival in, you know, contemporary as in, you know, you can go back to as far back as 25, 30 years when you're looking at Woodstock was a music festival Glastonbury is a music festival. Like, what other festivals do we have that aren't a typical music festival? Very, very few. So I avoid using the term 
we were asked one time by Spin Magazine if they, they could add us to their summer festival lineup uh, calendar and could we send them a photo. And we were like, no, uh, because we didn't want to be put in that. Because if you look at one of the principal, some of the principal aspects to Burning Man that are super, super important for people to adopt and not ignore are that it's a radical self-reliance experience. So it's not something where you get a ticket and you passively take in. You really need to prepare physically and mentally for for your own survival. And I mean, it's kind of funny if you ever talk to Stephen Raspa, he does admit that his first Burning Man in 1996, he came with a jar of peanut butter and a gallon of water. You know, that's a bad festival attendee. And and, in those days, 1996, there was, I guess, about 8,000 people. And you know, the risks of him dying in the desert with 8,000 people around are kind of low. And really, the risks of someone dying of dehydration or not having food with 80,000 people around are low. Uh, but the risk of being, of allowing people to show up culturally unprepared w- really affects the culture. I mean, that's one of the discussions that's pretty prevalent about Burning Man right now is what is happening to the culture and is it drifting away from its better roots or its better experience? And when you talk about what that is, people, they like to point their fingers at the wealthy, which is particularly unfair. That assumes that everybody that has money is not able to take care of themselves and behave properly, and that's just baloney. But it, that does point to what is the framework by which you come to Burning Man? What are you expecting? And I just think it's dangerous to talk too much about Burning Man as being a festival because of the contemporary perspective of a festival is a music festival. Now, I think what's been interesting about listening to your podcast series, and I've listened to a portion of a number of them that other burners have told me to listen to. And frankly, I really do like your podcast series. So thank you for being patient with me to Thank you. That's come very sweet and, of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely, I definitely have enjoyed it. And and you're and the way that you're talking about festival, Eamon, is I think fair to include Burning Man in a festival. If a festival is an opportunity to celebrate, bring people together, live in community, in some cases there are obviously festivals that are urban festivals where you're not living together. There's certainly a number of interesting European ones. I don't consider South by Southwest a festival, but some people might. But I think being festive and celebratory and doing it in the company of others is a teaching tool. And so for me, Burning Man is an eight-day long tail teaching tool that produces a festival atmosphere, a festival experience. I just Mm. don't lead with the word festival when I talk about Burning Man. I love that answer. And um, you mentioned Stephen Raspa. Stephen is actually my first mentor in the context of Burning Man. I worked on the Burning Man special events team with Stephen like 10 years ago. I know you did. Oh, he's so wonderful. He taught me. He's recommended you a number of times for different little projects and things like that. He's like, have you talked to Eamon? Yeah, he he adores you. Well, and he is such such a special leader because he has this ability to listen to everyone and I know very few people who will listen to everyone, you know, who will really give everyone their space to work out whatever they're trying to figure yeah. out. Um, so yep, mad props to Steven. And also an, my other big mentor, which I mentioned, Chip Conley, who, you know, a, a 
close friend of yours and mine. And when I think about festivals in Burning Man, I think about Kumbh Mela. And you know, this is the largest festival in the world. It's very similar to Burning Man in many ways. And Chip was there for the Melakumela. I forget what the big one is called, but the biggest of the Kumbamelas. And so when I think about festivals, I really think about it in that context, that it's important to distinguish Burning Man as not a music festival. But I think when we go all the way to... um, Graham Barry once wrote in the uh, Burning Man journal, friends don't let friends call Burning Man a festival. And I was so mad about that title because when when we go all the way to the direction of saying like, no, you can't call it a festival. I think that that kind of strips away the possibility of a certain kind of leadership within this, within the broader idea of a, of a festival culture. So, you know, like lightning in a bottle isn't, the same as Coachella. It's certainly not the same as Burning Man, but in a sense, Burning Man is in this leadership role in relation to a lot of the more participatory festivals and the festivals that do some version of the job that you've just highlighted, which is this kind of communal teaching experience. And so when people are so insistent, no, it can't be a festival, it can't be a festival, I feel like in a sense... Ultimately, I like what you've just said, that it's, an, it's a good starter for a conversation. If it can't be a festival at all, that's the end of what could be a good conversation. If it's just a music festival, then that's also the end of what could be a good conversation. But the good conversation is to say, well, what does a festival mean? What do you want a festival to mean? And from that perspective, I think it's just great to talk about it being a festival. And so I'm happy we started here. Great. Me too. So... I was listening to you on Bob Pittman's podcast, which was a great primer for this conversation. And for those who haven't listened to his podcast or your appearance on his podcast, it's called Math and Magic. And he brought up something that I didn't know about you, which is that your first connection to Burning Man was through seeing a photograph. And I love yep. that. I love that because that's th- that many people saw beautiful photos or videos of the desert and were called. And I didn't know that that's how you were first connected to Burning Man. I'm pretty proud of that story because it led directly into the fact that that's how I found out led directly into the first really visible role I had with Burning Man was to oversee the media. And my I was very passionate about allowing photographers. It's funny, there's all these different ways in which people get mad at somebody's ruining Burning Man. I think Caveat's written a, um, a, a lovely post about, you know, I'm ruining Burning Man. There's always somebody ruining Burning Man. And Larry used to talk about who was ruining Burning Man. Once upon a time, it was the, he called it the fat frat boys, which was really pretty funny. Now, the wealthier ruining Burning Man. When I came along, in, I went in 95 and I went in 96. And then in 1997, when I helped with the early stages of that part of the event, I was super passionate about the photographers and the media because the media were ruining Burning Man. Uh, The internet was just on the scene, and previous to that, there had been very few articles about Burning Man. So in 1997, we had an amazing number of really well-known media that showed up, and I just felt like the photographers were participants. And that went back to my own experience that I was um, in graduate school at the Academy of Art College, and... I was in a class where we were looking at the contact slides. This is before digital for contact proof that you would do. And you'd, you know, it was color, a color class. 
And there's these gorgeous photos. I mean, at that point, if it's a contact proof, you're looking at something that's like, you know, three quarters of an inch by an inch and a half um, on a contact sheet. And the colors and the majesticness of this wooden sculpture laying on this vast desert plain, laying on it, and then being lifted up in this sort of pink-orange sunset glow. I don't even remember seeing a picture of it burning. I just remember seeing this sort of trellis-like creature. Um, I could, couldn't tell the scale at first, and then I saw that it was you know, really quite large. And I wanted to know where. I wanted to know all levels of where. Where was the desert, and where was that piece of art? And then that led me on a journey. And I, those pictures, I saw those pictures in 1990. Two, two or three. I started graduate school in photography in 1992. Yeah, it was 1992. Yeah, because then I, at Thanksgiving, my then boyfriend and I went to Reno to visit friends, and I had just turned 30, and I wanted to drive out to that desert. And I we went out to the Black Rock Desert in November of 1992, and I was just like stunned with the beauty of the desert. And that was part of what my drive was to see this art piece was my father was from El Paso and we had spent time in El Paso, Texas and in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico when I was a kid, you're sort of driving back and forth in that area and I always thought the desert was just magical. And I had driven across the country from the East Coast and I was in California and a friend of mine had gotten me to drive with him into New Mexico, into the high desert, visit some Native American sites. And I just, I was just nuts about the desert. So my first passion seeing those pictures was this beautiful art piece in the desert. I knew nothing about the size of the gathering. At the time when I asked the girl who'd shown the photos, she said there were 300 people there. And that was like nothing, you know, that's just the size of a large wedding. And it wasn't, my draw was not because I thought that there was going to be a whole lot of people there that I was going to find any kind of connection with. I was fascinated that she, I remember her telling us, and then the, the teacher kept telling everybody to shut up because we were all like whispering, like, where is it? What is it? What's the story? And and afterwards, I remember going out after the class. He was like, you know, we're talking about the pictures, like the quality of the pictures, and asking her, like, what did, what did they do there? And she's like, oh, well, there was drumming, and then, then they burned it because there were some burning pictures. I was like, well, what else do you do? She's like, oh, you just sit around in the hot sun kind of talking to people. And I kept thinking, well, that part didn't really interest me. And I just really wanted to see this beautiful art piece. And then she was like, well, it's going to happen next year. But you know, you have to have this right phone number. <laughs> and and she like walked away. And I was like, what do you mean the phone number? And I remember like l looking for her. And then my and in 93, I sat next to this guy in class that I ended up dating and going to my first Burning Man with. And and we both had been in that color class in 1993. It's a year later. And he, and he was like, did you go to that thing? And I was like, no, did you go to that thing? I can't find it. And we like we look, looked in the yellow pages. We called up information in Nevada because we thought it was in Nevada. And we, there was nothing for the Burning Man or Burning or Man or Burning Man art, nothing. Of course, it was, that's because it was in California. And it took like chasing this girl down. And she wrote the number on a strip of paper and in those days it was just a it was a voicemail. That's all you got was a voicemail box. You left your your address and someone sent you a newsletter. You never spoke to a human at all. And there was no website. So finding Burning Man in nineteen ninety two and nineteen ninety three meant you knew somebody and you called a hotline and you got a newsletter sent to you and, and, and that all for me happened because I saw a photo in a photography class that struck me as as something just so beautiful. I had to go see it. So much magic is 
cultivated in our lives by saying yes to strange invitations. It's one of the things I love about Burning Man is, is all the little strange invitations and the different rabbit holes we tumble down because of them. Um, I love that you brought up Santa Fe. I, I don't think you know this about me, but I was born and raised in Santa Fe. So yeah, <gasps> I love of the high desert. I did not know that about you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. The grandchild of a painter and um, a, a lover of high desert. And you, just, you mentioned your father who was raised in El Paso. And I think that the listeners might be interested to know that your father might be kind of a surprising figure in terms of his political beliefs and his sort of orientation to the world. And that actually some of what was really interesting about his worldview, I think, has actually positively influenced you and what you bring to Burning Man. (laughs) Well, my dad is certainly, my dad and my family are some of my favorite subjects to talk about. My father passed away in 2009 My mom is still alive. I have three sisters, all younger than me, all doing interesting things in the world. And I have three nephews and three nieces, four four nieces. So I've got this magnificent Catholic family. And my papa was uh, what Larry called an old-style or old-school industrialist. He ran a smelting type of manufacturing company that produced brass and copper, sheet metal and rod. My father was born in 1937 and absolutely is a product of the time period where the the goal was to make yourself better and make and and have it better for your family. His father um, didn't finish high school, um, but his mother was educated at the Sorbonne and was an artist. And all three of the children went to Ivy League schools and my uncle rebelled. And my aunt is a cultural anthropologist that spent time in um, Turkey, Peru, and Iran. And my uncle went to Woodstock and was arrested in D.C. protesting the war. But my dad, he was the eldest, the eldest child, and he was the one that was determined to succeed and to take the values uh, that he'd learned from his parents, to take care of your family, as Catholicism does, and to be a good citizen. And at that time, that was a Republican theology. So, you know, as a Republican, I was raised also reading Ayn Rand, which my father was very fond of. I spent a summer doing something called Read for Rent. I lived in Baltimore, and the money I made as a bank teller for the summer of college, that was to go towards my spending money. He made sure he covered my rent that summer, but I had to read uh, these conservative books. Um, The first book I read was Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which I loved, And then I read William E. Simon's book called A Time for Truth. And that's about the monetary system. And I learned a lot about the movement of money and the value of it in global economy. And the book is still around. It's kind of a classic in that regard. And then I didn't like Milton Friedman. So then my dad had me read Atlas Shrugged. So that just gives you some idea of where he was coming from. He was, a, he, from an economic standpoint, he really saw the importance of building your business in a way that gave it the tools for survival. But he did not tend to choose the value of the business over the value of the individual. Because as a Catholic, you're really, although there's all kinds of challenges with Catholicism, but I was raised to believe that I was to look out for other people. 
So I learned from my dad some principles that show up for me at Burning Man. I have been complimented because I, I worked, you know, I ran DPW before I was CEO. And I would go out and I would put the fence in. And some people didn't even know I was the person running DPW. And that's kind of the way I wanted it to be. I wanted to learn people's names. I wanted to hear what they talked about. I wanted to hear what they complained about. I, I wanted to be able to go to the team and just say, you know, these guys, they need, you know, they need beer at five o'clock in the afternoon. Let's get some coolers on a regular basis. That's what we, we started doing that. We started distributing beer so that all the managers didn't have to go buy beer. They were buying their own beer. I was like, why aren't we just getting a whole bunch of, I mean, everybody gets a couple six packs depending, or 12 packs depending on the size of their group. You know, I got, I picked up that by hanging out, working beside people. They didn't know who I was. And I got that from my father, you know? So yeah, he is a Republican, but he was not a Republican that believed that money was more important than people. You know, my dad was the president of his own company and he was in his early 40s, you know, and he'd work his ass off at that point for nearly, you know, for 15 years for sure and worked his way up in different ways. So my father, I'm proud that he was a Republican. He taught me to be fiscally responsible. He taught it. We had savings accounts. We did not spend money beyond our means. He never spent money beyond his means. You know, when he had the money, he could have bought the fanciest car on the planet, and he taught us, you don't buy the fanciest car on the planet. Why do you need to buy the fanciest car on the planet? What's that tell you? What does that tell anybody about you? So that, I feel like those are super important ways in which, you know, just because we have some money, Burning Man doesn't need to buy the brand new fire truck. We can get, you know, we can get the used fire truck. We can, we can scrape and put things together in a safe way, but... We should be really super responsible about how we treat money and how we treat people. And I got that from my dad. And yes, he was a Republican. And I'm definitely helping steer Burning Man using theory and philosophy that I got from my Republican father. So, Marion. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> well, and and the, of course, there's the contrast of your father, and then your and then your hippie uncle too. And yeah, that's a thread I want to follow. Who loves Bernie Man. That that's a thread I want to follow. And there are a, a thousand things that I want to talk to you about. But we're in this current moment with Burning Man, where finances are a huge part of the conversation. So I think that it would be really helpful for our audience to take a moment just to talk about where Burning Man's at and what Burning Man needs. Sure. And there was a really great interview that you did on Burn Life um, with Dr. Yes, yep. and that's very thorough. And I don't want to be that thorough because I have way too many things I want to talk to you about. And so I'm just going to invite the listener to really going into some numbers and some technical stuff about PPE loans and these sorts of things. There's a great interview. And so I'll, I'll direct you, dear listener, to that. But just where we're at in this moment as a culture, the event in the desert, the operations of the Burning Man organization, where are we at financially and what do we need to do as a culture to weather this storm? So you're right. Dr. Yes's piece is really great. I mean, it probably takes 30 minutes to read it, so I'm glad we're not going to go into all the details. And that was published at the end of June of 2020, so it's just been a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, I'll try to simplify the answer of where we are at right now. We are still waiting for various pieces of money owed to us to return to us. So the state of Nevada owes us the uh, $1.4 in taxes that they, entertainment tax they took from us. So we're waiting for that. 
Um, we're sort of sorting different pieces. It's sort of like putting all your pocket change on the table to figure out how much money you really do have for your meal that night, when you're, particularly when you're in college or if you're low on cash. And we, we need to have $8 million to get to the end of 2020 and not uh, gut the organization. And if we're going to have an event in 2021, we will probably wait as long as we can to start selling tickets so we don't have to give the money back again if we have to cancel. So making a decision to have for the event to happen means we have to try to make it into part of 2021 for a couple of months. So I feel like we're looking for 7 to $10 million to get to the beginning of th- that decision and to be able to make a firm decision. Now, I'm going to make that decision as soon as we possibly can, or we all will actually, so that could come in December if it becomes super clear. I mean, I kind of feel like here we are today, and there's nothing that gives me faith that we're going to happen in 2021. However, everything I'm doing is preparing us to happen in 2021. And that's part of why we're even spending money. People keep asking, well, what are you guys doing? Are you all just sort of sitting around? And it's really incomprehensible to people that that we would be, that we wouldn't like, you know, cut the staff in half. But you have to think about, I had a friend of mine who actually works for Apple, a very visible position, and, and I was talking to him in April, right after this all went down, and, and he said, Marion, please don't do anything to destabilize the organization. And I felt so empowered by hearing that because that's what was deep in my gut, was to not do anything to destabilize the organization. And if you think about that, like we're not a product. And like we were talking about a festival, if you talk about some of the, you know, what Live Nation's gone through and Electric Daisy Carnival, and, and they've all got, you know, and some of them are figuring out how to, how to pivot to keep their businesses alive. But yes, there's a business supporting the production of Black Rock City, but there's also a culture. And we're, we are a, a, a big capital W, we. We're not just the 100 people that work in the Burning Man Project. We are really, though we're not a democracy and we're not elected to those positions, we're all in service to something bigger than ourselves. And there is, when you look and you ask, well, what's the volunteerism? You know, I, I'd love it when people ask what the volunteerism is for Burning Man. I usually like, well, how many people go to Burning Man? That's the, how many volunteers we have at Burning Man. Plus all the people that didn't go that helped with the art that couldn't go and all the people that had to be, you know, back at home for school and whatever else. So we're a community and the organization is a core that is helping facilitate and steer Black Rock City into being. And out of Black Rock City comes all these cultural tendrils of of action, of cultural action, like Birders Without Borders, like the regional network, that from it is bringing artistic grants from their different events and gatherings. So to gut the core organization that's helping facilitate this flow is stupid. It's incomprehensible and it's stupid. So then you say, well, why can't you just lay these people off and save the money and then you put them back on again? Well, I mean, people have houses, they have apartments, they have children. And then you say, well, what are these people doing? And I'm really proud of the fact that uh, we did have a couple layoffs. We have trimmed ourselves down. And what we're doing with the time and the money is we are actually right now on some level a content creation machine. Mm. 
Uh, a lot of what we're doing internally is leaning towards kindling. We're taking community content that's actually naturally being created, and we're giving it, a, we're amplifying it. It's a portal for people. We are definitely encouraging all of our volunteer leadership to continue to meet with volunteers to create weekly or monthly Zoom events. Some groups are extremely active in um, revising their protocols, being active out in the community during COVID or during Black Lives Matter. The, the thing about being part of the Burning Man community is you're already in little sub-communities of volunteer groups and theme camps, and so you're already set up to be active. And the organization is is a matrix, a center of a matrix where you can learn information, you can learn about how to be a better volunteer, you can learn about leadership, you can learn about starting organizations. So we've always been doing pieces of these things. It's just that they, they, they this ends up lower on the list when we're producing this event. And we also have an event production team that are, are rangers and they're emergency services that have so many things um, that could be improved about how we operate so that we can be a better leader and we can be a better organization and we can do things that serve the community more than just trying to keep the uh, organization alive. So we need the 8 million, 7 to 8 million, it depends on how you know, what money is coming back in and what donations look like. But that's the goal just to get to the end of the year. And it's a serious goal. And the question that people were asking me recently, I was like, why aren't you guys talking about this? Why aren't we just waving the flag and going hysterical? Well, it's all about timing. We took in $22 million for tickets and we needed to set up a system to give people an opportunity to donate those tickets or... Or, or refund the ticket money. And that, it took a while to set up the system, and it took a while to do the implementation, and that took us until the 14th or 15th of May. Then we spent a full week contacting by hand 800 people of the 36,000, 18,000 transactions. 800 people hadn't responded, so they contacted and called every single person because we were not going to just convert these into donations without contacting people. And so once everybody had been contacted and that you know, challenge had been faced. We felt it was time to start talking about sorting, like, did we get the PPP? We got it. How much of it? Like, I mean, seriously, this has been... And then George Floyd was murdered, as we know, and everything changed. And it is really, I think, tone deaf to, at the same time, we figure out what we that we need seven or eight million dollars that we just start jumping up and down, hollering and waving our flag of like, but we're going to you know, not survive if we don't get the funding. So it's been about timing, Amen. It has been about doing the work that we can do behind the scenes. We have actually contacted a lot of our major donors. We are continuing to contact more of them. We've gotten lovely donations. We did get $2 million of our donations from people's tickets. We are probably going to turn the volume up. We are probably going to start talking about it a little more clearly because I feel uncomfortable about waiting too long to talk about it for fear that the next thing that's going to come along is the election and people are going to put their time and energy into that. So, that, And then it's going to be Christmas. And so there's always going to be something. So it's really a delicate conversation for Burning Man to, the Burning Man Project, to really talk in true terms about what we need without being ignorant 
about the difficulty that other people are in at this time. But we're but we're going to turn the volume up because, frankly, Eamon, if we're going to make it to 2022, which is probably the long game, we, we need $30 million. So $7 million is just step one, and it's real. So I've gone to Burning Man 10 times, and I remember, and I've told this story a lot because it's so special to me, being on the playa and seeing men gallivanting around in like brunch lady hats and like flowing gowns. And I saw a potential to expand who I could possibly be. And it was uniquely healing to my particular wounds to see men being so free when I'd spent a lot of my life feeling so confined. And Burning Man gave that to me. Burning Man has given so much to me, so much to me. So let me, Marion, ask you in this moment, we are in this crisis. What can I give to Burning Man right now? Well, honestly, there's a lot you can give, no matter where you are financially at this point. If you have the means and you're someone that is experiencing the upturn of the market, I think becoming involved philanthropically in the world around you, whether it is Burning Man or other social justice issues, I really feel like there's a, a shortcoming to some degree in a, a lot of the current generation in really how important being th philanthropic is. So I find that being philanthropic towards Burning Man is a, a very valuable place to go because it also feels good. When you have extra money, it feels good to take care of the person that needs it and the Burning Man organization needs it. But what else can you do if you're not philanthropic? I mean, honestly, we've been, we've had a lot of conversations. $5 and $10, it's about more people, not about more money. It is about more people because one thing we know about Burning Man is that it feels really good to participate. So whether you're participating and bringing your art or you're helping build your camp or you're cooking or you're a greeter shift, it also really feels good to just put down 25 bucks towards Burning Man. I have these friends in Romania, Eamon, that I just adore. They've never been to Burning Man. I have a bunch of friends in Romania because I just love Romania. But this couple that have been really kind to me, um, and then they thought they were going to come to Burning Man, and they didn't, and then they were going to come for 2020, and obviously they can't. And they, and they sent $30. And Romania is not a wealthy country. And this couple, they work, they are their own, they work for themselves, which is really unusual in Romania. And they were like, I'm sorry, we don't have more. And it literally brought me to tears. Because it is about, they, they were like, we care so much about Burning Man. That's sort of, that kind of, that that's a gift that comes from, you know, somewhere else. I, it's not what I need. It's what they wanted to do. Uh, the other way to help, you know, with Burning Man, honestly, is to share the story about what, what the organization needs. That's one of the things that's really very valuable. It's I what think we're doing right now. Burning Man, <laughs> it's what we're doing right now. Hello, everybody. You know, honestly, I'm hearing more about groups that are gathering. I've been invited to a gathering at the end of August. I know one of my staff members this week, one of our staff members is in, there's two of them in, in Oregon with some friends. There's 25 of them. They're from a camp. They're all going to get tested and they're going to spend time together. And they're going to decide as they see each other, but they have not all seen each other. And that. The, the opportunity to carefully find ways to see people and for Burning Man 
in all of our experience, we're building resilience, okay? So burners should find ways to share what they know about resilience and build that confidence in setting up framework for other people to connect with each other. Because we may be in this one for another year or so, and the pain that's already happening in three months with people not being able to see one another is certainly part of the insanity that's happening in America where, where people are not able to understand the. this is not about personal liberty. This is about something greater than the individual and that we need to work together. So I look beyond the that and say, what are the ways in which burners can be communitarian to help others either through this emotionally or through community service or through building confidence, creating conversation, just using the skills that we use and to use them now to bridge the difficulty because I can't really comprehend how it is in some of these states that people are just thumbing their noses at protocols that are well known about how to manage your uh, yourself in public so that you will reduce the spread of a disease that does not have a vaccine. And it is fascinating to talk to burners who say that they have their their mental focus, although this is difficult for all of us, I'm not saying it's not difficult for burners at all, but that they, there's a woman who I know who's Israeli, and she said the two places that she's learned how to think this through is the work that she did in the Israeli army and the time that she was at Burning Man. Those are the things that have helped her survive. And she's just like, it's like there are not dozens, but hundreds of people. I've been on different WhatsApps. I've been on different lists and different Zooms where people are, thank God for Burning Man. So I think burners have an obligation to then take the psychology and the philosophy of being a person caring for others in the course of difficulty and crisis and figure out how to project that to help heal what we're doing, what's happening around us. So yeah, Burning Man, the project needs money. And Burning Man, the project needs people to be good citizens. And Burning Man, the culture needs all of us to be good citizens and look out for each other in the world. That's the magic, Eamon. When people ask, what's the magic about Burning Man? I'm like, the magic is it makes you feel a lot more like trusting humanity, and it, it drives you towards service, service to others. So that's what we need right now. I need some funding, Burning Man Project, and the culture on this planet needs Burning Man culture. I camped with uh, Burners Without Borders for the first time this past year. Um, and I've right been, on. I've been hopping camps for a few years, and I'm really glad to have landed with Burners Without Borders. Burners Without Borders is actually hosting a weekly call in terms of community resilience, mm-hmm. and it's this wonderful Wednesday call where people just pitch the projects they're on and ask for support. And it's really beautiful to see Burning Man out in the world. And there are people who are like, well, how is Burning Man relevant right now? And I just feel like... You haven't been yet, have you? Because, <laughs> you know, this resilience is so relevant. And we are going to, part of this podcast is about this moment of supporting and saving Burning Man. And so I'm doing well myself in my life. I'm working for a psychedelic medicine startup at the moment, which is a cool thing to be doing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's cool to have that in my life. And that means that I do have money to be able to support others. And what I've been saying to other people is that Basically, if you have enough money to take care of yourself, 
then you have everything to be grateful for. If you have enough money to take care of yourself and help others, then help others, you support Black Lives Matter, support frontline workers. If you have enough money to take care of yourself and support these causes that are really pressing, then pay for your Burning Man ticket. If you can, <laughs> if, you, if, you can if you can take care of yourself and you've got money to help out in different places where the people are really needing it and you also have money, then buy your Burning Man ticket. And buy, yep. buy, your, buy your Burning Man ticket this year. And I'm not sure what y'all are going to be doing for the crowdfunding. I'm hoping to release this podcast in some way to associate with that and kind of push people in that direction. But Marion, I will tell you now on this podcast that I will pay for my Burning Man ticket this year because oh, it's, been, it's, it's been 10 years. Um, so I am committed to my support of Burning Man and I want to mention that on the podcast and I want to wow. say that because I Thank think you. that- well, you're welcome. It's for me. Super but it's for, generous. Well, it's for me, but it's also for I. I believe in this culture, and and I just wanted and I want to do it on the show because I want to, you know, it's, I want to encourage others to do something. Ah, uh, listen, Amen. Thank you for your leadership in that regard. I really appreciate it, and and it's the thing that a lot of people say that hadn't already bought their ticket. For the through the DGS, that's exactly what they've said. They're like, Marion, tell us when because we want to join. We're gonna we're gonna buy our Burning Man ticket. We're gonna spend the four hundred twenty five or four hundred fifty dollars or whatever. That's what we're planning to spend per person in our family, in our group, whatever. That's very generous. It's heartwarming. It, it I feel very grateful that there are people like yourself that feel called to support at that level. Thank you. Well, and and there's going to be this crowdfunding campaign, and I don't know the exact framing of it, but I, I like this idea of buy your Burning Man ticket. I just like that, like that's yeah. something that we can choose to do. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I am buying my Burning Man ticket, and and we're going to pivot too in this moment because Burning Man is so many things. And Burning Man is always fighting with each other. We're always like we're always arguing about <laughs> what Burning Man is, and and it's my Burning Man, not your Burning Man. And I actually kind of love that. I love the sort of like the the weird balancing of our strange organism around mm. the globe because it's so alive. And I like to compare Burning Man to David Bowie. So everybody who loves David Bowie thinks that David Bowie is their David Bowie, like. You know, and whatever period, like you loved Ziggy or you loved like the labyrinth or whatever it was, those of us who love David Bowie have a very personal relationship and he's our David Bowie. But David Bowie was many different things. That's part of why he was so magical is he evolved in so many ways in his career. And I feel like with Burning Man, Burning Man is actually so many different things. Um, it must be so hard to balance the different desires of such a cantankerous group of extraordinary people, you know, all around the globe. And I just love all these conversations that are happening and, and all these different sort of like, oh, Burning Man should be this way and Burning Man's not this way and that sort of thing. But you may, you kind of put a flag in the ground with a, with a cultural course correction. And it's interesting because we had one burn after the cultural course correction. So we, it's hard to see how the culture has changed. But I'd, I'd just like to take a moment to kind of talk about the state of Burning Man culture. The culture is going to be changing in these moments. If, if, if a million people can visit Burning Man online, then that's, that's a huge unacculturated influx. So, mm -hmm. so just before this COVID experience, 
there's this flag in the ground about the cultural course correction. And I'm curious why you chose that moment to say we need to change course and whether you've seen that course change and like mm. how you see it projecting into the future. Sure. You know, you started off by talking about how people have very strong opinions about Burning Man and there's always somebody being like, no, that is my... And there is this group out of New York, there's an organization that there's a burner leading it who's given us some insight on how people communicate about Burning Man. And they noted by observing social media trends that burners love to get snarky and bitch at each other, which is pretty funny. Non-burners divide into the burner curious and then the burner haters. But the burners, they just get, they all, all have something to say. And drifting that into why we did that timing relates because because we're cultural first it is in the best interest of the outcome to be listening and to be observing from a micro standpoint and a macro standpoint before we make major moves and decisions and sometimes we'll make micro decisions in order to you know affect the dial but it's really important we've learned a long time ago that yes there are decisions you might know that you need to do like when it rains you close the gate duh you don't have to really wait for it to get super squishy for and for someone to get their truck stuck but when you're making statements about what you want. We were making statements about what we wanted from people. We did not want certain types of convenience behavior to happen. We were making statements about warning people that it's not necessary to, to pay $15,000 to join a camp and have a good Burning Man experience. But at the same time, we were also putting taxes on the generators and the RV groups that were coming in. And then we noticed that there were so many coming in, we decided to reduce the number of, of RVs that could be driven in by companies. We did that one year before. We did it the year before that, before that post that, that we posted in, that's in February of 2019 that you're talking about. And we noticed that some of the little dials and the micro fixes we were making there were also other micro decisions we were making that were serving the organization. And then there are other decisions that we were not making because we thought that the community could make them. Like we we really want to be more benevolent than rule-based. I would rather talk about the ways in which people could take charge of making change than creating rules to force that. That's like a philosophical bent that I've certainly solidified with Burning Man, but I definitely think came from my personhood and childhood and certainly my semi-libertarian father's thinking. So that letter at that particular time came directly out of 2018's Burning Man event, which came out of losing Larry in earlier 2018. And we had been observing, there was sort of a list of things we'd have been observing and Larry had been observing. Larry had gone in, there's a, a couple of camps that could tell you, and that would have been in 2017 he did it, 2016 and 2017. He actually dressed up as a worm, W-O-R-M, worm, 
and went in with one of the, with at the time answer girl who did the placement and wandered into some camps. And I think he did this sort of randomly with a couple people, maybe even Miss Kelly. But they went on these adventures to the, the list of camps that from 2015 to 2016 had been problematic camps. And then we'd had an internal uh, process for, it was sort of like a remediation process where people were given input on how to improve and what we wanted to see. And it was really, they were doing the best they could, but we didn't really have the staff and it takes a lot of work to figure out who's doing something wrong. And we got to that point. 2014 was the caravansary year. And that's its own, you know, whole series of blogs and yuha, raha, blah, blah. And then so you're you're taking me all the way up to 2019. So we've got 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018. So those are four years of things happening in the, at the event and in the culture where we were doing some things, we were asking some things, we were doing some remediation with the camps. Larry was going in randomly to figure out whether these camps were really acting like shitheads or not and whether they were welcoming a dude in a worm outfit because it wasn't Larry Harvey with his Stetson. And he definitely found that some camps were idiots and some camps were super cool. And that was really kind of a fun way to do it, not just have the placement people say, well, they were nice to our, their neighbors, but no, the dude in the worm suit. And so we were gathering data, you know, sometimes it's not as obvious as it looks. Sometimes it's like there's a camp that really means well and they're trying super hard and maybe the organization doesn't have the time to assist. So at the tail end of 2018, we saw more people came to Burning Man in 2018 than ever, partly because Larry passed away. We always have ticket holders that don't show up. That's the year where almost everybody that had a a ticket in their hand actually showed up. And we had a list, we had a running list that we'd had for a couple of years. And in that fall, Dom in the media team drafted um, an outline of what he thought it was time to talk about. And Megan Miller worked through that document and they put it in front of me and it felt like it was time. But it took us a while, like that document was drafted in October and we looked at it in December and it just wasn't right. And then... It was January and February that I worked on it with Megan and and Miss Kelly. And the part I think about that document that was really the most important was that we we called out a camp. Why did you call out one single camp? I was always curious about that. Well, yeah. Well, you know, because their their failures were so egregious and so obvious. Like it's it's hard to there's lots of different camps that at different times have made mistakes. But sometimes the camps fix them. So it didn't seem like – we talked a lot about it. In fact, the staff didn't want to name any camp. That mm-hmm. was a huge thing. I wanted to name a camp because, you know, there have to be like these – there have to be a confluence of things. And I felt that there was a confluence of very obvious issues. And there wasn't for any other camp. They were so far in over their heads, they were actually causing problems for the organization for our own survival it doesn't make any sense when the BLM comes to you and says there's this name of this camp and their violations, environmental violations, are putting the organization in jeopardy. Then it's a no-brainer. So I, I have this theory about Burning Man. So the 10 principles, which are... Fam- oh, by the way, just by the way, I would say that the anecdotal input we got after 2019 was people were really blown away with what they thought was a better vibe than they'd seen in a long time. Oh, that's great. A a lot of different people. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of, yeah, we took that as input that that the article struck people because we definitely heard from more camps. And we added some internal 
mechanisms so that there were some volunteer groups that were uh, part of the theme camp network that were willing to make themselves available to answer questions for camps that felt like they um, might be doing it wrong so that the so that the system would take care of itself. So the members of the community would work to look out for the other members of the community, which is way better than the Burning Man project doing all the work. It's just like we don't want the government to run everything for us. We'd rather the community do it. So we got a lot of feedback. I mean, honestly, I I got feedback from from pretty p- people I don't even know. We got messages and emails and posts and things like that that just said, wow, what was different about 2019? And then sometimes you can read a thread where someone was like, well, everybody had to you know, shape up or ship out. And more people were uh, identifying cultural, you know, acculturation leads in their camp. Like, I really think the community stepped up, Amen. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at it. I think our letter was simply a warning sign, a warning call. And people were, so many people were like, well, uh, didn't you see this? And enough already, and it's about time. But it's like I started with this answer, which is, yeah, we saw it. We were making micro changes along the way. But when you want to move culture, you have to do things in a way that does not create one rule set. You have to do it in a way so that the culture actually recognizes the behavior or the change is in the interest of everyone because that way you'll get the buy-in. Which touches on you were just starting to lean into the ten principles, but that's it's they're related. Making that statement in the winter of 2019, far in advance, not in July when everybody's got their hoo ha on trying to prepare for the event, but in February before they start their camps, but so they can start thinking about what can I do to make a difference. You're much more likely to see a difference. So I have this theory about the 10 principles. I am a passionate devotee of Burning Man and Burning Man culture. And I also like to have an attentive ear to our various hypocrisies within our beautiful principles and our incredible culture. And so the Burning Man's 10 principles, they coalesced in 2004 as a way of describing what was already happening. And famously and oft said, they are descriptive rather than, rather than proscriptive. They're a way of describing a Burning Man space rather than you must check these boxes. And there's tension between them. You know, the civic responsibility and radical self-reliance. There's like some, there's tension between them. I have this theory that there's kind of a shadow opposite for each of the principles. So we have leave no trace. We go to the desert and we just totally clean up and, and, and we all are shooting for this beautiful green move map. And at the same time, we dump all of our stuff in dumpsters on, you know, on the way out. We have this idea of immediacy and yet we just love our social media posts after the event. So there, uh, there's these aspects to the Burning Man principles that have a kind of glaring opposite. And the two that I think are most important right now are radical inclusivity and leave no trace. I think that these are the principles in the evolution of Burning Man that are most salient for our cultural moment. And I know with the leave no trace, there's the sustainability roadmap. And I want to talk about that second. But first, I want to talk about radical inclusivity. Because we are in a cultural moment of a reckoning of the deep developmental trauma of racism in America. And the conversation about whiteness at Burning Man has been 
a really robust ongoing conversation. I actually wrote about Africa Burn. My favorite title of anything I've ever written was The Unbearable Whiteness of Burning, which was an article that I wrote about going to South Africa and attending a gathering that didn't reflect the demographics of that country and then spending two weeks afterwards speaking to the Africa Burn organizers and really doing a deep dive. And I read Caveat's beautiful piece, Is Burning Man for White People?, And I was wrestling with these ideas of inclusivity versus tokenism. You know, like who wants to go to an event that you're being invited to because they want to fill a quota of your identity? Like who wants to do that? I think what a lot of people, when they look at this particular aspect of Burning Man critically, which of course they should, we all should, it's so easy to oversimplify the issues at play and the dynamics at play. But the thing that got me most in all the stuff that I've explored around race at Burning Man was a conversation that I had with Nexus on my podcast last year. And the podcast was called Fumbling Towards Inclusivity. And Nexus is a black, queer, Burning Man uh, regional lead for DC. Really smart, really savvy about these topics. And what he said that was most impactful for me about the issue of race at Burning Man was this. If you want to go to a blank canvas to create an entirely new way of living, which is Burning Man every year. It's this beautiful blank canvas of the desert with the mountains in the background. And we go there and we say, okay, what could a city look like this year? Let's build this city from scratch. If you go to that city and you have your unconscious biases with you, you're actually not creating a new city. You're coming with this baggage that you're not able to look at. And the issue for what Nexus highlighted most of all for him, the issue of race and inclusivity at Burning Man actually came down to this attempt to create a new world with these unexamined biases. And I thought that that was a really, that was a very sobering way of looking at the whiteness that seems to be replicated at Burning Man events around the world. And so I wanted to offer that because that's where I'm at with my own understanding. And I wanted to use that as a way of opening up this conversation that's so pressing for burners, which is how do we create a really radically inclusive burning man that doesn't just say all are welcome, but actually makes all feel truly welcome? Well, I mean, this is a, I'm glad you had a conversation with him. He's a really super smart, sharp person who has a very good way of looking at Burning Man through that lens um, from where he's sitting at and has added a great deal to the conversation. The amazing part about this moment in time is the way in which so many of us, myself included, have been faced with all of these questions, and I think any intelligent person should be asking themselves, what am I doing about that and where can I help with that? That's that's your baseline. And then Burning Man, the organization, there's three, there's three Burning Mans, really. I, there is there's Black Rock City, Burning Man. That's Black Rock City and Burning Man. I mean, we differentiate it sometimes because it's really valuable to let people know that Burning Man can be everywhere. It's a way of life. It's the way you look at yourself. Um, That's Burning Man, the culture. And then there's the Burning Man project, the organization. And when we're asked about what are we going to do about this, the we that I represent, that I have a hand in is like all three. 
And so the answers become different and a little more complicated. I can't really ask the community to solve how are we treating race in the organization versus how are we treating race in the Black Rock City and then what is Burning Man doing for race in the global culture of Burning Man itself? I would love to go outward and go inward. And first of all, there is racism around the globe. It, it exists in different cultures. I've watched some things on the internet that were fascinating. A woman in a Central American or South American country who was lighter skinned talking about how she grew up um, thinking less of the indigenous culture in her South Af South American country and how this moment of Black Lives Matter made her realize how she was racist and not in the same way towards a black person, but towards indigenous culture where she's at. And the way in which around the globe people are treating each other in this fashion is not helping humanity proceed in ways that are productive and peaceful and generous and kind that are improving education and healthcare and making pe people feel safe as human beings living alongside one another. So that on a global scale, we have a chance to look at and burners who, for the most part, have a generous state of mind towards other human beings get to be leaders in how they look at it globally in the culture. Then the next question is BlackRock City. You know, you're touching, you touched on a whole bunch of things, which are the things that we've talked about and touched on. And Nexus um, has given the organization input and there are other people of color. There are other people that are black that have given us input. And uh, certainly there was an article last year, I think Jenny Kane did it from the Reno Journal-Gazette, where there was someone in the article who, of, who was Black American who said, well, you know, I don't want to be part of tokenism. I don't want to come to the event. I've never wanted to be a place where people feel forced to do something. I'm going to do my part to expose people to this um, opportunity for Black Rock City. So I'm caught trying to dance down this path of looking at what is the organization doing that inhibits people of different cultures, particularly the Black culture, to come to Burning Man? What are we doing that's inhibiting it? And take the input of how we can make the change. And you are right when you said earlier, Burning Man, people have opinions about everything. They're wide-ranged from some people want us to give free tickets um, to people that are black. And some people want us to uh, create camps that we uh, pay for. And I think there are a lot of better ways. There are a lot better ways. And one of the things that we were actively doing and have been actively doing, which is trying to create more input for artists of color to be at Burning Man. Because that what that does is it brings along with it the cultures um, that help people create. And for 2020, there was a black artist out of Chicago that had actually never been to Black Rock City. In fact, there's two. There was one from Africa. This woman um, had a pretty cool... Uh, piece and a gentleman from Chicago. And often having not been a Burning Man is sort of like harder to get an art grant. And also, most people don't want to have that line that says, are you black? Are you white? Or what's your off color? Like our, you know, our way of looking for art is different. But th this is the time for people to say where they are, what their history is, and what they're bringing to the storyline. And we're looking, we have been for years, but we're looking even more for the artists that are black Americans, black culture from all around the world. Why not? We should be. And then it comes from within. Then that's Burning Man Project. We did add four board members at the end of 2019. Three of them are 
considered people that are non-white, two that are from Iran, and Fab Five Freddy, uh, of course, is a black American and is an amazing person and personality. Deep in the music culture in New York and art, he's himself an artist and a burner. You know, and I've learned, Eamon, that there are ways that the organization could do their part to seek out and actively make ourselves available. See, the one thing I learned by listening to a lot of podcasts as I drove across the country to where I am right now, and I'm trying my best to listen to everything I possibly could, but a lot of it was podcasts from people that I was just learning about following on Instagram. And I realized how much we're all raised in this education system that is, you know, pro-white, okay? Like the whether you're black or of color, that's the system that we're all in in America. So it's about unlearning some things, but it's also about looking under the surface about the stuff that was obviously there. And in doing that, I realize how easy it's been for us to not go the extra mile and looking at what's in San Francisco and what are the resources to help to have an internship from people of color at Burning Man. Like, great, we always want interns, but there are inner city organizations that are helping people of color to have an internship. We should be looking there. So I think that we can do a better job inside the organization about elevating this conversation so that we ourselves are a better representative of agreeing to have a place on this journey to owning what we don't know and owning what we want to do. And then for the members of Black Rock City uh, and people like Nexus to come forward as they have, there's a, a gentleman that wrote a, a cool piece on Facebook that then we put on our blog, Rob, and to tell their stories from their perspective, Amen. because the good news is that Burning Man is in a different place than a lot of the world. So we need to just keep leveling up on being a place that does accept people of all races and all colors and all gender identi identities and then, you know, stand up and do what we can to elevate the conversation and participate and lead as the best we can, Amen. As the best at the best we can. That's what we have to do. I love that you're listening to podcasts and you're on a personal journey with this. I think all of us are. And that's been one of the powerful legacies of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others who have died um, is that people are doing a lot of deep soul searching. And I think that's one of the invitations yeah. of this moment is on a personal level that we all are listening and learning and making mistakes and then going back and listening and learning. And I just want to shout out one burner in this context, which is Erin Douglas, who has the Black Burner Project. And she, I believe, is still doing a crowdfunding campaign, and I'll have that link in the show notes to support her art. So I just want to give a little shout out there, and I'll have a link to that. No, thank you so much. You know, and, and Nexus is right, so that's why we have to look at, and we are in a great position to be able to look at. I don't really think that Burning Man should be a political platform. But a lot of the choices we make are political as people. It, it, we're, like everything is politicized. It's so hard. So I think that we're on a journey where we get to learn through the acts of the community and the voices of the community, just like we did with the cultural course correcting. I want to hear from the leaders 
of color, that are black, that want to be heard, that want something from Burning Man in Black Rock City. That's the voices that we need to hear. And there's no blockage on that. I mean, we have so many places where email and people can find their ways into volunteer groups and find leadership. It is not hard to get a voice in the Burning Man community to have a voice and for the organization to hear you. This is that time. We are not blocking change. We are doing our best to facilitate change. That's a core drive to be part of the Burning Man culture is to facilitate better connections between people. Hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I'm glad we got a nice juicy moment of talking about this topic. And the other topic that is a lot on Burner's mind as the event evolves, um, around the time of Burning Man's founding, there was a real resistance to consumerism. That was a real key feature. Now we're really looking at the climate crisis as as one of the biggest issues in our lives at the moment. And you know, one of the big criticisms of Burning Man is that people are going out in the desert and burning tons of CO two. And um, the idea of environmental sustainability is foremost on people's minds. And I was wondering if you could, you know, albeit briefly, kind of give us an update on where we are with the sustainability roadmap. And most of all, I'm curious. In taking a year off of the actual physical city in the desert, are we accelerating that roadmap? How are we on our way to our sustainability goals? Well, yeah, I didn't even touch on that earlier. That's one of the areas that we are very fortunate to be able to take two people on the event side that would they would they there would be something for them to do, but two of them are now working on framework for the sustainability roadmap. What does each department responsibility? What are the goals? How do we project manage? The, <laughs> the sustainability roadmap will be a year old on July 20th. And they're posting uh, a list of the accomplishments and then a dialogue on some of what we need to do next. You know, it is embarrassing that I think it's I think it's more embarrassing frankly. I think yes, okay, we burn things. The bigger issue for sure is that there is this rabid behavior towards buying things and consumption in order to get to Burning Man. And I think that it can be managed if people look carefully at really what what's the value and outcome of coming to the experience. It isn't really having a different costume to wear every day. It's just like if you're going to go on a camping trip, how do you mix and match like animals? You know, bring what you need to survive and bring your tools and, and set them up in a way that you're sharing with other people, that you're living as minimally as possible, not as maximally. You're not, you're not supposed to bring the whole entire house to Burning Man. Um, just because you have an RV doesn't need, mean you need to fill it. So that's one thing that just really kind of makes me crazy. You know, we started the car pass, vehicle pass issue for a number of reasons. The biggest was the BLM was making a point that we knew to be true as we went towards our 10-year permit, which was that the, the limit to the growth of Burning Man was going to happen because of vehicles. And our motivation was we were sick and tired of seeing so many people come in by themselves in a car. So there are consumptive ways in which the participants are behaving that have nothing to do with burning. And if you had Dave X on your show, which by the way, someday you really should have Dave X on your show if you've not had Dave X, 
Dave X has been to so many different kinds of festivals. Dave X was in the military. Dave X is one of our is our lead pyro person in the organization. He's a very funny person and a very great storyteller. And Dave X would tell you we are burning less than we used to, by far. And that is a feedback that probably comes up in the top ten feedback we get each year, which is why does it feel like we're burning less and we need more burning and we want more fires at night? So statistically, we are burning less per capita than we have in the past. And we won't ever get to burning, not burning man. Thank you very much. But we will offset that. But I'd real, I'd just like to point to the ways in which burners can really be conscious. Like if you go to Burning Man, you become conscious of leave no trace. It absolutely changes the way you then exist in the outside world. You look at packaging differently. You do. You just do. People that smoke cigarettes then start carrying around little smoker tins outside of Burning Man. Because it does that to you. So why can't we change the way we consume in the mass way in which we consume, whether it's vehicles or the way we just buy shit? It has to be new all the time. Why aren't we still doing more as a sharing economy? Why aren't we sharing, you know, that we'd like to set up the way we map Black Rock City so that more camps can share things like generators and live next to each other. That's what the organization can do to help that. So the individuals can help and the organization can help. And we have a project that's BlackRock Power that is going to be prototyped and announced fairly soon that is going to be an opportunity for camps to buy into an off-grid solution that will begin to prototype taking some camps onto solar that the organization is going to be a partner in. So yes, it is hard to go there and feel for the planet and see burning of resources, the organizations continue to guide people towards the best solutions for burning things and for all of us to look at what it means to do less of things, including the organization. What does it mean to do something less, less of something? We've talked about what would it mean to do our build, build week? Can we make it shorter, you know? I mean, every little bit, the thing I've also learned about this movement around the environment is every little bit helps. And so that's one of the things that our event staff is doing in this time of being idle, is taking a look at how are we using our resources? What way in which are we being irresponsible? Anybody who's done or gone to a festival, particularly if you've helped produce a festival or an event or gathering, you know that if you're short on time, you might just do everything you possibly can to get it done. But when you have the time to sit and breathe, you can look back on, wow, that's not the most efficient way to do things. And I think that there are ways in which we are doing things that affect the environment downstream, but you have to sometimes go back upstream to look at how you're doing things. How how early do people come out that are hired? Like, does it matter that 200 people are there you know, three weeks in advance? Can you have 200 people there two weeks in advance? That's all environmental. You're, you're, it's more water you're trucking in. It's more people that are driving with gasoline. It's more airplanes. It's like everything. So we are in the middle of examining all that stuff, and I'm really grateful for this year off. It gives us more time to answer these questions. So we have been doing a very Burning Man thing in this conversation, which is we've been talking a lot about what Burning Man is and how to make it better and like the different nuances. And we have this upcoming experience the multiverse 
And so I'd like to end our conversation today by talking about the multiverse. And I think the multiverse is both extraordinarily exciting in what it could possibly be and incredibly sad in what it absolutely can't be you know and that's there's a tension there you know i i love that that magical sunrise where you've been up all night and you're sitting around with your friends in the, in the dust and you're and you're just someone serendipitously ambles into your camp and they're actually an old friend you went to boarding school with 20 years ago like that serendipity is so soul nourishing and I'm just curious, how are we going to be able to cultivate that in a digital experience? How can we create the magic of Burning Man within these different realms? I know eight realms have been announced about Burning Man. All of these different people who maybe haven't gone to the event are going to be checking out these realms. And we've been spending so much time on Zoom calls or watching live streams, sitting with our computers, and that doesn't feel like Burning Man. So what are, what are you thinking in terms of capturing and sharing the Burning Man magic in this new space of the multiverse? Well, so first of all, it's super hilarious that Stuart Mangrum came up with the multiverse theme last fall, and who knew that it would become more obvious than it seemed at the time? Ha ha. And people have asked Stuart, well, you know, what's next year is going to be? And the answer is, well, who knows? Who knows when the next Burning Man is going to be? So we're in the multiverse until then. Well, I should point out that Kindling is our Burning Man portal for these different verses. So Kindling is at least a portal for people to have options on how they want to engage. And you're right, Eamon. I mean, no. This is not Black Rock City. This is not that random, beautiful experience of weather and art, and magic, and heat stroke, and water, and bicycles, and sound, and love, and hugging. No. But this is, I think, a very interesting opportunity for people to, particularly if you've been to Burning Man, to show up and try this medium. How can you show up in the medium and be a, a teacher and a leader And not just go into the medium with your campmates, which might be what you'll do, but where do you, like you're at Burning Man, break off from your camp and bicycle by yourself? I think that's one of the places that burners should think about when they're going into, like, we we told the staff that we want in the organization for people not to book meetings that whole week. We will actually want the staff, the team that are in Burning Man Project to actually take the time to go in experience in these verses. You call them realms because you're clearly a gamer. I used to play World of Warcraft, so I know that concept. And we were calling verses because they're multiverses and different universes. So these different verses, we want people to go experiment with them because Really, part of what we all get from Burning Man is the sense of connection to other people. It sort of opens your heart. And why we couldn't be giving that gift. Why we would, like, we're not going to go to Black Rock City and we're not going to be in this place where you receive so much energy from it. We're going to be going as experienced burners somewhere where we have a chance to give. You're not going to receive what it is we've all been experienced and we love receiving or even giving, but why not give differently? Like that's the magic. If the internet is a place that has opened all of our eyes and our lives and given so much connectivity, and it also has its limitations and you know makes us sad and can break our hearts, um, and really it can be a place of very mean anonymous behavior. 
Why can't the burners sh- show up in this experience and really take the best of what we do in the world? So not take our mean, anonymous, snarky selves and take our really loving, kind selves into the internet realm and the verses and be curious and be playful. Like, let's go there. Let's be that. And I'm certain, Eamon, there will be little magical experiences. I mean, I have gone into a couple of things where I did. I was like, well, this isn't Burning Man, but I was, there is a costume cult has done a couple scavenger hunts in a couple of different of these events. And it was hilarious. And this one woman was wearing this beautiful cape made from beetles uh, wings. And she told the story about how she made this with her mother and uh, everybody was in tears. And it was exactly like it would have been if I'd been hiding in an art piece during a dust storm and someone said to this woman, oh my God, you have a beautiful cape. And she starts telling you where the beautiful cape comes. That's the magic, Amen. The, the magic at Burning Man is the way in which we connect with one another. We tell our stories. We appreciate other people. We feel safe. We feel safe to be ourselves. So I don't see why there isn't it isn't possible to go into these experiences as a burner because I want to learn and I want to teach and I want to show up in a different medium as the best person I possibly can because it's not going to be Black Rock City in the desert, no way, no how. I, I think that it's a learning moment. And amen, if we don't happen in 2021, what happens in 2020 with these different verses will carry itself. It will help carry us to 2022, amen. That's what's really important about this. You know, this podcast is Life is a Festival. And the whole point of it is that we go to these spaces, Burning Man foremost, Absolutely. We go to these spaces, we have these experiences. It's like a psychedelic experience. It's a peak experience. It's, it's everything we've ever wanted in that moment. And then we return to our lives. And the, the point is, is how do we integrate and seed these things into our lives? And I think you've brought up this wonderful idea about the multiverse, which is it's not Black Rock City. So as Chip likes to say, disappointment equals expectation plus reality. And since you can't take away reality, you're going to have to take away your expectation. So let's, let's let go of the expectation. But if we've gone to Burning Man and we've experienced this, we consider ourselves burners, then the multiverse is an opportunity for something totally different. We can bring that spirit. Yep. Many, many people around the world who could never go to Burning Man are going to get this experience, right? So we have an opportunity here to be the teachers and the leaders and take the spirit of the desert, the spirit of this global community, and actually acculturate in mass all sorts of people into this digital experience. And I think that if we can let go of the expectation that we're going to get a Black Rock City experience in any way this year and just completely release it and think about, okay, what do we really want to get and what do we really need? And you you pointed it out beautifully. It's the connection. It's the human connection. So how can we yeah. connect as burners in this digital space? How can we create digital spaces? I love, for example... Infinite Playa is doing a piece where, where you get a custom avatar. Okay, now that's right up my alley. I'm like, I'm totally down to see like what kind of custom avatar I could create. So there's opportunities here if we release the expectation and recognize that this is just one more chapter in, in our journeys into these spaces of, of deep mm. communal connection. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a, an opportunity because there are people that are yearning for the Burning Man experience that might never go into a virtual world. They're, they have no reason to. So why not? You know, it is a it is a contemporary opportunity, to contemporary technology. So why not set things up so that we can welcome each other in a different plane, just like the playa is a different plane. Some people have never gone camping that come to Burning Man. Some people have never lived for a number of days in 100-degree heat. So now we get to welcome and introduce each other to a different environment um, and experiment and, and acculturate and support each other using the principles we have. One thing I wanted to note was that you know, I've been in some of these Zoom rooms and these sort of Burning Man-like events, and some people just think like wearing a funny hat is the best way to show up, be like a burner or costume, and that is short-selling the culture immensely. Being, I think, a good burner is helping other people engage in conversation, like asking the stranger. Being a good burner is welcoming someone that when they come into a Zoom room, particularly if it looks like they're kind of shy and they're kind of in the dark. It's it's also not misbehaving or calling people out that are misbehaving. I watched a guy that was being kind of a dick in um, a Zoom room, but I watched the burners just like, hey, man, you know, this is not what we're here for. And the person facilitating the event it was not the first person that had to say something. You could see she was rattled by this guy's behavior, but the others were like, hey, man, that's not what we're here for. So that's what burners can do is show up as you would at uh, in, a, in an event in person and and participate in, in a way that, that you're proud of. That's what we get to do. You know, and I was just thinking, it's probably going to help too to just look at the multiverse as a regional and show up and let it be what it is and show up, you know, and I think... As we close our conversation today, and thank you for staying on so long. I definitely, I definitely kept you, and and you kept with oh, me. Oh, I love talking with you. Thank you. It's been great. I, you know, I could and I could go on and on. I'm telling you, but I think that we're in a beautiful I'm moment. Glad to be here. We're in a beautiful moment as burners because the world needs so much. And and just a couple of things that popped up in this conversation to just echo here. What Burners Without Borders is doing in the world right now to support people, to support mutual aid networks, for example. What we can do as Burners in terms of supporting the organization, buying the ticket if we can afford that, and we can also afford helping others. What we can do in terms of letting the multiverse be whatever it is and showing up and letting it be and and just experiencing that. There's a lot of opportunity right now to be Burners in a real way in this unreal world. So I'm just so grateful that you've come on the show and offered your insight and leadership. I really appreciate you answering some tough questions with a lot of heart and just inviting us to be burners because Burning Man has absolutely saved my life, truly. Brought me into a vibrant, alive experience that I don't think I would have discovered without Burning Man. And I know many, many people feel the same way. And part of this moment is is giving giving back to Burning Man, giving to others who are just discovering Burning Man for the first time, and just keeping living this wobbly, confusing life that we have where there will still be serendipity and magic and someday dust storms as well. Oh, you know, thank you for having me here. I feel very fortunate to be at this place in time and to have come along and be in service for the Burning Man Project and the Burning Man culture. 
And, you know, the story that I really hope to usually tell is that it is up to all of us in the community to to show up in the ways that we're proud of to tell the Burning Man story. And it's not just my story. And I'm super stoked that you have a bunch of burners that were on before me. That's one of the reasons why I waited to talk with you, because I didn't really want to be like marrying out in front. Um, you, you've got some great storytellers that have come before me. Um, and it makes it easier for me to tell a story. And tell your own story, you yes. know, and, and get some of your background yeah. here. And God, I, there's so, yeah. much, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But we did a great job today. And thanks for your time and for your leadership. And I would love to have you on the show again, like next year, next time we're actually going to the desert and talk about all sorts of Let's other do things. that. Let's do that when there's something that's got a new twist to it. Um, and we feel like talking about it. I would love to, Eamon. This has been super fun. I really enjoy your passion for festivals. You know, the thing we didn't talk about that I would love to talk about with you in the future is I have been to a number of festivals. And I think um, talking about festival culture and how if the world went even more sideways than it is right now, that I believe that festival culture is part of what would save society because people have learned through festival culture to trust one another. You're going to drop that at the end of the podcast? That is like the <laughs> DNA of this show. And you're like, well, we'll talk about it in the future. I mean, what a teaser for round two. That's what. That's my favorite, all caps, thing to talk about. And I drop it in periodically. I'm on these different... I was, The first time I talked about it was at the, in Amsterdam. I flew out for 36 hours to be on this panel for the dance... A AD. Amsterdam dance... Amsterdam dance AD, event. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I was there with, who's the lovely guy that runs, one of the brothers that run Lightning in the Bottle? Oh, um, uh, Dee Dee? Was it Dee Dee Fleming? Yep, Dee Dee. Yep, Dee Dee Fleming. And there was a couple other people there, but that was, that. they asked me a question where that was the first time I'd talked publicly. And I didn't really want to be sort of super weird, but I really genuinely do feel deeply, very, very deeply. And that's why I will fly across the planet to show up in different cities to talk about festival culture because... I think that that's a really important thread and a really important storyline. And as you may know, we have a, a gathering for festival producers and people involved with festivals at Burning Man. And I do that because there's so much competition sometimes with festival folks, but Burning Man is a place where a lot of them can meet and really appreciate one another and learn. And so, yeah, that's our next conversation, Amen. Um, or we can do it with a couple other people. I know you usually do single sort of, interviews, but if you got a couple of us at some point on to talk about how festival culture could actually fix the planet, that'd be super fun to talk about. That would be like the ultimate Life is a Festival podcast too. It's just like take you and like two or three other people who've been philosophically like noodling on this point for a while because I believe it and I, and I don't believe it in a static way. I don't think festivals as they are, fix the world. I think there's something lazy about that. That's like saying psychedelics fix the world. Psychedelics don't fix the world yeah. at all. Psychedelics allow you to expand in a way that that will then then invite you to do the work to fix the world. But festival yeah. culture, yeah. you nailed it. It teaches us to trust each other. And that's Burning Man. That is the core of Burning Man, is it teaches that's us Burning to Man, man. That's, that's Burning Man, man. I, I'm glad we figured out what Burning Man was, at least. But yeah, yeah. let's do that conversation Thank you for your time today. I've had a really great time talking to you, and I really appreciate you sharing with us today and being on the show. Well, it's super cool to talk with you, and I look forward to talking with you again, Eamon. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor. And we're done. Yay! That was great. That was a that was a great show. Thanks. Thank you. That was super fun. Yeah, I, I usually at the very end I'll ask how the podcast went, and after the music outros, then we do a little gab about it. I know you got to go right now, but if you have any last little thing you want to say, did you like the show? Did it go well? Well, I noticed you didn't ask me what I was wanted from the the uh, podcast, which you do at the beginning of some of them. I was all ready for that question, really? but I was going to say at the time I just wanted to have fun. Oh. Um, and talk about and talk about some things I had never talked about online ever before, and that's what we did. And I had fun. I really did. You know, I just had a podcast with a transgender post Taoist teacher, and I asked her that question, and she she has this incredible voice, and she was like, "Well, Eamon, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but that's not a very good question." And we're we're close, and we know each other quite well. And she's like, "Well, I don't want to have a transactional conversation." Like, and it was so beautiful. And so I've been a little more timid about that question. So that's why you didn't get it. At the well, beginning. I hated the question. I've yeah, you've had it. Uh, I've hated. I've I've actually found it really irritating. So I'm glad you didn't open with it because it does it does take you're sitting there waiting to talk about the person and then there's Eamon asking what the person wants from the podcast, which is totally transactional. Well, so I was ready for it, but I was just gonna say I wanna have fun. But at the end, I wanna tell you I really had fun and I love being asked questions that I'm able to share my thoughts and how I represent the storyline for the Burning Man culture. It's a very rewarding role that I have. And so I appreciate having the opportunity to be in service to it. So thank you. Thank you. Well, and I had fun too. And, And I'll tell you, this is a pretty high level interview for this show. I mean, I've interviewed some really amazing people, but this is a conversation I've been thinking about for a long time. I have put more work into this podcast, into preparing for it than any other podcast I've done because it's one of those things I wanted to nail it. And just before we started, I was just like, well, nailing it is having fun. If I try to achieve a certain specific thing, then I'll fail. But if I get super prepared so I have everything available, if I need it, but then just show up and be me, that's what the audience wants anyway. They want two people that are fun to listen to. They want to feel like they're hanging out with us, learning something cool, and feeling connected. And We did it. I think we did it. It was good. It was good. And they want to feel like, yeah, and we had fun and, and people have fun listening to it. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Well, thank you so much. Have an have an amazing week and it's been such okay. a pleasure. Thank you, friend. Uh, take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye.